So for those unaware, I've helped organize an ongoing five-week writing contest called The Big Scribble, which has 409 high school and college journalists vying for the title. And this past week's assignment called for contestants to write about food. And I just want to read one of the entries real quick from a Creighton University junior named Kate Smith. I want to stick to my sandwich habits like peanut butter to a knife, but this time my curiosity gets the best of me. Larking through several worst favorite food lists, a weird sandwich catches my eye. It must have been made accidentally. Someone ran out of jelly, or they snagged the wrong jar from the fridge. But here I am, digging around the top shelf until I find the cool glass and metal lid of the pickle jar. Although it feels all wrong to me, I have to try it. Creamy peanut butter, spread thickly to the edge of the crust, obscures the bread's grainy texture. I press on the pickles. The ridges, carved in the sides, leave toothy indents on the cement-like surface before I've even taken a bite. Pools of peanut butter bubble up between the pickled polka dots, becoming smooth and shiny as juice rolls off each dill slice. The sandwich is heavy when I lift it off the plate, and gravity draws the corners down. Luckily, the suction of the peanut spread keeps the pickles from sliding off. My teeth bite through the crisp, cool chip on top and the bottom sponge of bread, meeting in the gooey center before pulling slowly away. The swirl of sweet and tart as I chew is startling. The peanut butter, no longer the saltiest condiment on the bread, provides a sweet base for the sandwich. The juice from the dill pickle mimics and multiplies the acidity that usually comes from the fruit jelly. Its tang interrupts the weight of the peanut butter. But the novelty is short-lived. The peanut butter starts to cloy next to its pickled pairing, and even with the peanut butter seal, the salty brine seeps through the bread. I've already returned the pickle jar to its dark corner in the fridge. This strange sandwich may cajole some people's taste for adventure, but I'll stick with the familiar and perfect PB and J. As I said last week, great writing doesn't always require age or experience or an Ivy League pedigree. It requires heart and vision and sometimes a willingness to eat pickles and peanut butter. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Brad Beluchin, author of the terrific new book, The Wax Pack, On the Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife, which, as we speak, is approaching Amazon's top 100 and speaks to the hustle, heart, and drive of an oft-rejected author with a vision. This is episode number 154. Let's sing some music. Thanks for having me on, by the way. Yeah, oh, Brad, it's my pleasure. And, um... I would say, in many ways, you're the most sympathetic guest I've had on this podcast thus far, meaning your book is coming out during a pandemic. First of all, I read a galley of the book, and I blurbed the book, and I yeah. freaking loved it. It was like a, a lightning bolt out of nowhere, truly. I'd never heard of you before. Your <laughs> first book, University of Nebraska Press, it's a you know, relatively right. small imprint, and this book comes, and it's freaking awesome, right? And I blurb it, and you asked me to do a signing with you. Maybe the most pathetic signing ever because it's on Easter Sunday yeah, I know, at a bookstore. I know. And my wife is like, he's doing a signing on Easter. And I was like, I don't know. But, you know, he seems like a good guy. So, all right, <laughs> Easter, Easter signing, fine. You take what you can get. And then it comes out during a freaking pandemic. <laughs> and it's your first book. And, yeah, it's, right. and it's great. And I, just, I guess I'll start by asking, how, do you, uh, how have you been digesting this? 
Yeah, well, so on, so <laughs> not to be too much of a victim here, but on the on top of that, you know, I had this crazy forty stop book tour planned, which um, is I know it's really unusual to do book tours anymore, especially. You know, I was going to fund the whole thing, but I looked at it like clearly I like travel and road trips based on my book, so it would have been a fun experience. And I had to kind of plan the whole thing, so I'm literally cold cold calling bookstores in you know Evansville, Indiana, to try to set up events and minor league baseball teams, and I spent a couple months setting this whole tour up. And then of course that's all blown out because of the pandemic. Um, so hopefully that'll happen in the future, but no, I mean, I think I look at it like, I mean, clearly that's all beyond my control. Right. And one of the, you know, I think my book, I try to get into the psychology of life a lot. And I look at this like, okay, like you can only control what you can control. And, um, there's no sense in, in, in wallowing in the despair of all these, you know, this bad luck. So let me just focus on what I can do. And I think, you know, there are some silver linings that come out of this pandemic from, from the perspective of, a, of an author, which is it probably extends the promotional life of books a little bit um, because when baseball finally does come back, whenever that is, maybe next year, um, we could still probably promote our books even more or again. Um, it also helped me create this, or I, we had this pandemic baseball book club thing where several writers like uh, Jason Turbo and Anika Orock and Eric Nussbaum who had baseball books coming out, were all in the same boat. So we all kind of like, let's all help each other. So we kind of came together to promote each other and do these interviews. And that would probably have never happened if this hadn't happened. Right. Um, so I think there's, you know, and then of course there's the art, you know, people have said to me, oh, well, this could be good because people are at home, they have more time to read, which is true, but sort of the force that's countering that is that people are getting laid off and losing their jobs and they don't have disposable income to buy books. So got all these intersecting forces. It's, um, it's tough. I've told this story before, but I had a, uh, my second book was about Barry Bonds. Yeah, I remember and, hearing about this. Yeah, and two weeks or three weeks before it came out, Game of Shadows came out, also about Barry Bonds, and the number one book in the country for months. Yeah, and I remember my publisher saying, "This could be good," and you're like, uh, "I'd rather not take the shot that this could be good. I'd rather have this straight path." Um, right. But it's just, I just, I just think this is a. I, first of all, as I said earlier, it's a great book. Like, it's a great book. It's a freaking great book. I want to start with something I've never, I never asked this. It's the best cover I've ever seen on a book, ever. <laughs> it's my favorite cover. I've literally, I tweeted about it when I first saw the cover. Yeah, it's the yeah. best cover I've ever seen on a book. Obviously, people can't see this, but it is, it's the name of the book is a wax pack. The cover is a, I guess, 1986 Topps baseball card yeah. uh, packaging, you know, play on it. It feels like it. It's a waxy feel. It's one of the best covers I've ever seen. You would not... I just wouldn't think University of Nebraska Press is going to come out with this freaking gangster cover that's going to be. Um, so I never asked this, but how did the cover come to be? Yeah, that's a great question. So, and I'll let the designer know you're, you're a big fan. Um, so we looked at, when we were discussing, you know this from the input process, as a writer, they give you this form and you can give your suggestions on the cover. So, you know, I gave my input and there, we saw like, there were two possible directions. The direction that we ended up taking, which was to make the book literally look like a pack or to kind of go something way more abstract because the book really is about a lot more than baseball, something more, you know, symbolic. Um, and they, they ended up going with, you know, so I, that's, I gave my input, they go away, they come up and they produce a version of that and they send it to me. And I was like, it's fantastic. It looks just like, you know, it, we obviously took option one there. 
there were a few, I have, I have zero design sensibility. I'm, I'm terrible in that way. But one of my best friends is a great, has a great mind. So I showed it to him and he was like, okay, it's really good, but can we do these couple of tweaks? And so I was able to call the press and say, Hey, can we just, you know, make these modifications, which they were open to and made it even better. What would one be? Give me an example. Well, so if you look at the original, um, it looks just kind of just like the original packaging. If you look at the original pack, they do this the way that it's, it's subtle things, but the way that the spacing and the way that the, um, the ball is, is positioned makes it look like it's almost moving. And so there were, you know, again, I don't really see these small things, but they were just small tweaks. Right. Um, and they, and then I think like, if you notice like the, the wear on the corners, which yeah. makes it look, yeah, it's like great. adding, adding more of that in. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's truly, <laughs> oh, okay. I've read, I've never had a book even come close to the quality of this cover. It's the best book cover I've ever seen. And I'm not exaggerating when I say well, that. Thanks, man. Yeah. It's insane. And you had almost nothing to do with it. No, no. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I can't take any really credit there. No. Yeah. See, you're a bad self-promoter already. You're supposed to say, yeah. well, when I first thought of the concept, what, yeah. it, what occurred to me was. Honestly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all right. Um, all right. So you teach biology at Merritt College in Oakland, um, where you live. You're, you know, this guy who wants to write a book about opening a pack that you've had sitting around from 1986 baseball cards and tracking down each of the players. Um, a lot of people who listen to this podcast, I have found, are people who are kind of in your shoes. Uh, they've never written a sports book and they just, I really want to write a book. So how'd you go about it? Yeah. Um, so I had always, I mean, I had trained like in college, I studied journalism and I studied science and I decided that I wanted to do both. So I worked for a magazine called Islands Magazine out of college. It was a fact checker, which a job that sadly doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. Um, and then I decided I, I missed the science. I went to grad school, got my PhD. And then again, always wanted to do both. So after my PhD, I decided I'm going to freelance part-time and teach part-time as an adjunct, um, which is a, you know, pretty precarious living, but it's my passion. So it was worth, worth the trade-off. What year was this? Uh, 2013. Okay. So I started doing some freelancing, mostly about science. Cause that's my area. I, you know, wrote pieces for national geographic and discover and natural history short stuff, but I always like, I mean, my, my crap, you know, what I always wanted to do was that literary nonfiction, narrative nonfiction. I mean, the, like a long form. And we know that it's so, you know, the magazine has kind of disappeared as a place to, to do that. So now more and more is just writing books. So I always said, you know, like a lot of writers, you have different book ideas in the back of your head. And I had this because I always liked the players that were kind of the the underdogs as a kid, I always wanted to write about them, but no one's going to fund a book about Don, just Don Carmen. Right. So I figured like the device, the device of the pack will allow me to write about those guys because in any given pack, you know, 12 of the guys are going to be the, the underdog guys while still, you know, having a product that's, that's going to hopefully sell. So I started just doing my, I mean, I literally bought a book on like how to write a nonfiction book proposal and um, figured out all the elements, you know, went to the bookstore, studied the acknowledgement sections of books like yours and Jason Turbo's, you know, wrote to people like Jason Turbo, just cold email saying like, hey, uh, how does, you know, how does this work in a proposal? And I was really blown away by how generous established writers were to write back to me. Right. So I put together a proposal and I had my sample, you know, my outlines, um, 
sample chapter, all of that. And I was able to, I kind of got spoiled early in that I had a lot of interest from agents. Like I knew I had to get an agent. I had five agents that were interested, which is like huge because it's hard to get one agent. Wait, how did you find Um, the agents to reach out to even? uh, So I would go to look in the acknowledgements of similar books and see like, what a great idea. Who is representing these books? Um, I just want to say, Brad. Yeah. The answers are always out there. It's just a matter of looking for them. Like that's a great, the answers are always out there. You just got to think how, how can I creatively search for them? Which is actually why I, I am terrified of writing fiction, but I love nonfiction because I feel like with nonfiction, the truth is out there, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're sort of constrained by that. And those constraints give me security. Whereas if I could just make it up, it's like, that's way over, overwhelming. Wait, I always, people ask me if I want to write fiction and I always think, but I don't know, I don't know how you end it. But with, with nonfiction, there's always an ending. You know what the ending is going to be. You're done with exactly. your trip or someone dies or whatever. It's over. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Constraints, constraints could be a good thing. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I look, I found out agents and they know it was, I mean, they were just cold emails. Like I didn't, again, I didn't have any publishing industry connections really. Um, and I got a lot of good feedback. I think the idea is just very, very attractive and popular, you know, taking the single pack. Uh, so, um, I signed with a guy named Peter Bernstein as an agent and he actually really encouraged me to take the trip before trying to get a book deal, you know, basically like funded myself essentially. Um, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So I, you know, it was a, again, a great personal, it probably cost me about $8,000 to take that trip and pay for the gas and the lodging and all that drove the trip to seven weeks. You know, it was an amazing, it, it, I mean, I had my ideas, but it, it blew away my expectations in terms of how forthcoming the players were, as you can see in the book. Um, and then I came back and it's like, okay, now I, now I kind of know the story. Let me totally rework the proposal. So I spent several months redoing the proposal and the final proposal I had was 125 pages, which, which, but it's funny, my agent, I knew people, you know, other writers had told me they sold books on like a 10 page proposal. But he, he didn't say anything. He didn't tell me to cut it down. So I was like, okay. So, you know, he then went out to about five or six imprints at the Big Five in New York. They generally liked it, but thought it needed some work. And it did need work. I was still a little, it wasn't as tight as it needed to be. So I went back and then spent another eight or nine months re, reworking the whole proposal. And when I showed it to Peter, who, you know, I always had a good relationship with and was very helpful to me. He said, you know, I don't, I I just don't think it's there. I don't, he basically thought that it wasn't a good idea for me to be in the book very much. He kept pushing me more towards make it traditional baseball, you know, don't have all this sort of don't, and, and a lot, and frankly, a lot of the gatekeepers in the industry didn't want me to be in the book. They said, you know, we don't like when the author is a participant and you, no one knows who you are. But the biggest criticism was you don't have a, a platform, you don't have a following, you don't have a hundred thousand Twitter followers. Yeah. Um, so when, well, so when I did, so Peter and I parted ways amicably and I went back to one of those other agents who was interested. And then we went out into the broader, you know, went out and like cast a wide net, probably sent it out to 30 editors at different imprints. And again, you know, I have a question. Were you emailing these out? You weren't physically mailing. You were emailing everything out at this point. Correct? Well, my agent yeah. um, was emailing them out. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And so we got, um, you know, the drumbeat of rejection. And again, the biggest complaint was, well, it's great writing. It's a great idea, but we don't think you can, we can sell enough copies because no one knows who you are. 
which as a, as a writer is extremely frustrating because there's nothing I can really do about that. You know, it's like beyond my control. Right. Um, there were a couple of editors that really were high on it and tried to push it through, but they, I guess, you know, when they do these editorial board meetings, they basically have to get buy-in from the whole editorial board to move forward and make an offer. And they just couldn't, they didn't have the juice or the ability to push it through. So at that point, my, this, this agent said, um, I think we're at the end of the road. You may just have to take a, you know, end this. And that's where I was at this crossroads. This is like late 2018, three years after I took the trip. And I said, well, I, I, I've come this far. I got to see it through. And so I ended up not even needing an agent and going and approaching Rob Taylor at the University of Nebraska, an editor there, and sent him the proposal. And he was like, it's great. Let's, let's do it. Wow. Wait, so from the time you first thought of the idea, seriously considered the idea, to the time it was, it was published, uh, what was the time span? So four years to get the book deal. Six years to get it published. And was there a point for you personally where you were like, this just isn't going to happen. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I got to move on from this. Well, I think in that four year, like after the second agent and all the strikeouts from the, you know, the, the big five imprints. And it wasn't just a big, I mean, some mid-list publishers also passed on it, you know, smaller publishers. Um, at that point, I was like, you know, and again, I, I, I think I got, because I had such interest from the agents, I got a little up over my skis in terms of being confident it would, it would sell. And at that point I was like, do I self publish it? Do I, you know, and keep in mind, I hadn't written the whole, I mean, I still had most of the book to write because I had done just the proposals and sample chapters, but I hadn't actually had a chance to write the whole thing. Right. Um, so I was, I was considering throwing in the towel then, but then I was like, no, I, I've come too far. I have to, no matter, regardless of the financial part of it, I have to see it through. All right. And I want to go back a little. So, you decide, you come up with this idea, this random kind of weird, quirky, funky, cool idea um, for this book, which is I've, I'm going to open a pack of baseball cards and I'm going to find all these guys. Where does that idea come from? When did you actually go from, oh, this is kind of weird to I'm going to make this a book? So I, the idea itself was kind of like really one of those sort of inspiration eureka moments where it was like, I just remember collecting the, the packs and the cards and I just was thinking of the pack being almost like a book, like 15 cards in a pack, 15 chapters in a book. So uh, I always was thinking like this, so the, the idea of writing a book based on a pack was, was there. It was then, how do I do that? And initially I was thinking, my two, my two best friends who were in the first chapter of the book were originally going to go with me and it was going to be more of this buddy, buddy trip, but they ended up dropping out. Um, but we were thinking about maybe we make it like about the 1986 season told through 15 different perspectives, right? Which would have been much more of a traditional baseball book. And then that's this how This is a much better idea. What you ended up with is a much better idea. Right. So, but I realized like, as I developed it, I was like, I think it would be better to, to do it the way I did it. Like the vision of sort of me being the connective tissue with all these players and I could weave my own story in with theirs. Right. Right. You... Decide, okay, I'm going to track all these guys down. I'm going to take this trip across the country, find them all. Literally, how did you go about tracking each of these guys mm -hmm. down before you went on your trip? So the first thing I did was um, I subscribed to those public records databases that have, you know, people's information. Like which one did you subscribe to? Uh, I think Intellius. Okay. 
And so you get phone numbers, addresses, not really cell phones, but luckily these guys are old enough where they still have landlines a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, Wait, I just want to say, I want to say one thing. That's actually an important thing. There's an age divide right now. Yeah. So back in the day, I used to use Nexus Lexus to track people down all the time. And Nexus Lexus gives you home phone numbers. And that was very valuable until 2010, 2011. And now it's a really interesting divide who you can call at home. Generally, calling people at home under the age of 45, 50 is pretty useless. Yeah. But does Nexus Lexus now have cell phones? I think it might, but I no longer, I no, uh, I no longer have a subscription because it's very expensive. Right. So only like the big, I remember when I worked at the LA Times, they had it, but you know, yeah. they don't, I don't have it at Merritt College. So <laughs> I used to steal it from people. I'd be like, Hey, can I borrow your Lexus Nexus? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. Two years yeah. later, I'm using the Sports Illustrated password until they change. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I used that. And then I also, you know, I actually got those autograph collector handbooks that have like all the oh. addresses. Okay. And so I then, so first of all, I could tell where people lived. And I took on my road atlas and I mapped out, okay, like what's approximately the travel going to be like? And then uh, I wrote snail mail letters to each guy, knowing that they would probably not write back. I think I included like self-addressed stamped envelopes, but no one wrote back. But I just knew like I wanted them to at least have some context for when I cold called them later on. Nobody wrote back? No, not, to, not that way. Not to the... I'm SCS. surprised. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so then I did a comment. Like, so for Rance Mullenix, it was really easy because I Googled him and he's a, now a realtor. And all realtors put their phone numbers everywhere. Yeah. So I had his like cell phone right there. Picked up the phone, called Rance Mullenix on his cell phone. You know, scared out of my mind. Like, how do I get this guy to not hang up on me? Super nice guy. Wait, 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 wait. Tell me what you said. More or less, obviously. I'm yeah. I'm Rance Mullenix. Hello. What are you saying to me? <laughs> like, yeah. Hey, Rance. My name's Brad Belukshin. Uh, I'm a writer working on a an idea for a baseball book. Um, the idea is that. I got a pack of baseball cards from 1986 and write a book about all the guys in that pack. And you happen to be one of them. And I'm just trying to call everyone and let them know what I'm doing. It's something like that. You know, I mean, I want to do, I'm going to do two Rance Mullenix impersonations for you. Yeah. First is the one, if you were approaching him in 1986, fuck you kid. I got to take BP. Now yeah. I'm not doing anything. Happy to talk. Right. What do you, what do you right. got? But if, if you're Carlton Fisk in 2015, it's still fuck you kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that was, but then there were other people where like Lee Mazzilli, I, he had a listed landline phone number and I left a bunch of messages on his machine and then wasn't getting a response. And so this is where like, like Rance, who I had already talked to and was, was really, um, so actually Rance was a little bit different because he lives only three hours away from me here. So I actually had, and I put this in the beginning of the, like the preface of the book that the chapter about Rance is actually a composite of two visits to him because I knew I needed a sample chapter to sell the book. Right. So I had actually gone to see Rance first and like before the big road trip. So I already knew him a little bit. And he was a teammate of Lee Mazzilli in Toronto in 1989. He actually offered to call Lee Mazzilli on my behalf, which wow. is amazing to kind of vouch for me. So he did that which still didn't get Mazzilli to call me back. And then I happened to get Lee's wife, Danny, on the phone on a landline call. And she was like, okay, you know, Lee's just kind of, you know, he's, been, he's it's hard to get a hold of him, but I'll make sure he calls you back. And then I think that's what got him to finally call me. And then he was like really apologetic, like, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't called you back. 
so it was a, it was a range of it, but again, not, I didn't get to everybody like, um, I got a hold of, so Vince Coleman's a funny story. I didn't really put this whole thing in the book, but, um, I just want to say for readers who don't know Vince Coleman, one of the great base dealers of all time and kind of a notorious asshole during a lot of his playing career, especially yeah, with I don't the know, did you, did you ever tr- cover him or interact with him? Or? I didn't, but I knew a lot of the New York writers who dealt with him when he was a Met and he was a catastrophe as a Met, but right. That doesn't mean he's a bad guy now. Obviously, people behave in certain ways. So go ahead, please. Right. So he, um, <laughs> I knew I had read all that. I knew he was going to be tough. I couldn't get him, no response from any of the things I just mentioned. So this is the year before, or maybe like the, sp- like the spring of my trip. I knew he was a, a coach for the White Sox. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to spring training in Arizona and try to see him in person and flag him down. Did you try so to get go- credentials? No, I just went like as a, as a fan. Okay. So, um, I go to a game a couple hour, an hour before I see when he's coming onto the field and my whole strategy here, I had, I had printed out the letter that explained the project that he hadn't responded to and I had it ready to give to him. And so, but I knew it needed to get his attention. Right. And I knew if I just yelled, yelled out, Hey Vince, that that wouldn't work. So I had read in a 1985 sports illustrated profile that in Jacksonville, Florida, where he grew up, his uncle Carter made these sweet potato fries that he loved. So I literally yell out, Uncle Carter, sweet potato fries. Wow. As, as he's walking by, which of course is the last thing he expects to hear. And sure enough, he walks right over to me like, hello. <laughs> and that gave me just enough time to say, hey, Vince, um, here's a, you know, I'm doing this book. It's this, this letter explains it. Would you, would you give it a look? And he looks at me. And he looks, he looks and he goes, nope, and wouldn't even take the letter. So then I come up with a next plan. This is like now plan F, right? I uh, do a story for Rolling Stone on walk-up music because Royce Clayton is now, his job is to like customize walk-up music for current players. Wow. And he has a whole company. And I know that Royce was a teammate of Vince Coleman. So in my interview with Royce, and in some way, writing this article was all just to try to get to Vince Coleman. Like, right. you know? <laughs> right. And so I said, hey, you know, do you happen to be in touch with Vince Coleman? He's like, yeah. It's like, I'd like to interview Vince for the article for Rolling Stone. <laughs> the whole time I'm thinking, once I get Vince on the phone, I can do the bait and switch and tell him about my book. Which actually worked to the point where Coleman, because it was a favor to Royce Clayton, he texted me back and then I got him on the phone. And I said, hey, by the way, I'm like that crazy guy that yelled out Uncle Carter's sweet potato pies. And I explained the book. And again, once again, he just goes, nope. And I said, are you sure, Vince? And he goes, I told you, Brad, I'm not interested. And so I said, okay, well, I did everything I possibly could do to get Vince Coleman, right? So now when you read the book, you'll see, you know, I, I do, I go, I find Vince's childhood home. I find his church, his high school. I was able to write about him, even though he refused to talk to me. But he probably comes across as like the least sympathetic guy in the book. Because even with Fisk, who didn't really want to talk to me, I, you, you get some of that backstory about his father and how difficult his childhood was. And you can at least see some compassion for Fisk. I'm such a geek. 
that um, number one, when you say Royce Clayton, my ears perk up because I covered that guy a lot and loved Royce yeah. Clayton. Number two, um, I know exactly the Vince Coleman story you're talking about in Sports Illustrated. And number three, I know that Vince Coleman's brother, Greg Coleman, was a punter for the Minnesota Vikings, which is right. all p- pathetic information that no one except you and I probably know in this. Uh, well, and Vince know. Coleman wanted to be an NFL player more than uh, a baseball player and was also a kicker. Yeah. And he got overlooked. Wait, Florida a and yeah, and they, they made him try out at wide receiver for the Redskins. And he, he turned down being drafted by the Phillies to try out for the Redskins. But they wouldn't let him try out as a kicker. They made him go to wide receiver, which he wasn't very good at. And then he didn't get signed and ends up going back and getting drafted by the Cardinals the next year. And famously had a tarp roll over his leg. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. I, know, I, know, I know all the same Vince Coleman, Nusha, any other loser in this world. Uh mm-hmm. Um, let me answer this. Do you, cause you're like me, you were like this guy who was like, you sound like you're the same baseball geek I was as a kid who like yeah. poured over these cards and I could probably say a name to you and you can picture the baseball card in, in his head. When you go about this and guys don't meet your expectations or they're, they're a douchebag like a Vince Coleman or a Carton Fisk and they don't treat you nicely. Does it make you feel like a rejected 13 year old? Luckily enough, none of the guys that I had any, cause I had done like a year of research, read all their articles before I met them. And so I kind of knew like what I had my expectations. Most of the guys met my expectations, whether it was being a prick or being a nice guy. The only one that didn't, and this was in a positive way was your favorite Gary Templeton. Love. Who, you know, you wrote that. I mean, I wanted to ask you about that story because it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like he, he maybe wasn't that forthcoming with you back in whenever you interviewed him. Yep. So I was expecting based on your encounter and others that he wouldn't be very open. But as you see in the book, he's like totally, he was very open and he was very friendly and told, you know, clearly wanted to tell this whole story about the Whitey Herzog incident and his side of it that he, that hadn't really been put out there widely. So, um, so he was the only one that didn't meet my expectation. Like I kind of, thought that Fisk and Coleman would, would be jerks. So I wasn't right. really disappointed. Before we continue with two writers Sling and Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, on day number 653,222 of quarantine. Uh, What's wrong? Uh, Seriously, are you okay? Uh, hmm. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Go to 503-sports.com for more information about the best t-shirts, sweatshirts, jerseys around. Or, as Casey would say, uh. what was your greatest, like, what was your greatest moment in the whole process? Your moment where you, you got someone or maybe you got a piece of information or something happened where you're like, this is, this is why I'm spending 8000 bucks driving across the country for a book that I don't even have a publisher for. Like, what was your, <laughs> mo- what was your moment? I think it was the Don Carmen scene. So Don Carmen was my favorite as a kid, which I know puts me in a very small group. Wait, just so people understand, this would be the equivalent, if you're an NBA fan now, of (laughs) saying like your favorite NBA player is like whoever the Knicks eighth man is. It'd be like (laughs) Don Carmen was a good, okay, unexceptional major league pitcher, mainly with the Philadelphia Phillies. Continue. That's exactly right, yeah. So that, yeah, like I said, not, not a common sentiment, um, but he was my favorite. And to the point where, you know, I wrote him a birthday card when I was like nine or 10. I mean, I made plaques out of his baseball cards because, you know, you used to go and like, you go to a sports memorabilia store and they always have the star players and plaques. And I was like, well, I want Don Carmen to be on a plaque, but I'm never going to find that in the store. So I would go and, and have them like pay to have a custom made plaque with Don Carmen nameplate so I could put the card in there. 
so anyway, so um, I, I meet up with him uh, in Naples, Florida, and I decided like to ask him to meet me at the zoo, which I know is kind of weird. But um, again, as a writer, I always was thinking about how to make the narrative as entertaining as possible for the reader. And if I just sat down in coffee shops with everyone describing those surround, I mean, how many times can you describe a, a coffee mug, right? Well, what so would make you think of the zoo? I think um, it reminded me of childhood. Like, you know, a zoo is sort of something you do as a kid. And him being my childhood hero was like, well, why not go to the zoo with your childhood hero, right? right. Um, and he was game enough to say yes. So when I met him and, you know, we're talking, we're sitting there for maybe an hour. And then within that, an hour of meeting him, he's talking to me about and getting very, I mean, breaking down and, 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 you know, getting emotional, talking about his father and how much he wished his father would die when his father got in a car accident and how terribly traumatic and broken that relationship was, which I, I mean, that's so surreal, right? You're sitting there, you know, now your childhood heroes being this vulnerable and I don't even know him really, but so that moment was like, wow, this is powerful. My favorite player as a kid by far was Ken Griffey Sr. Mm -hmm. Love Ken Griffey Sr. And I finally met him very briefly when I was covering Major League Baseball and how McCoy, a Reds beat writer, introduced me to Ken Griffey Sr. And I was like, I had this thing about Ken Griffey Sr. in my head, it's Ken Griffey Sr. And then you meet him and you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, oh, just Ken Griffey Sr. Like, I was my, my favorite band as a kid, Hall & Oates, loved Hall & Oates. Met Daryl Hall. It was kind of like, oh. He's just it's kind of, oh. And I wonder, like, when you have a guy and you, you were cards on a plaque hanging on your wall, Don Carmen, and you finally meet him, does it meet your expectations or is it a little bit of, oh, it's Don Carmen? So I always wondered, why do I like this guy? Because uh, he played for the Phillies, my favorite team, and he was not a star player. But other than that, like, why did I focus on him? And as a scientist, I'm not someone that's prone to say, oh, it happens for a reason or it's fate. But... Then when I started to talk to him more and more, the guys, I mean, he, he's got a master's degree in psychology. He's working on a doctorate. He's, he works as Scott Boris, his staff psychologist. He's this, he's quoting Viktor Frankl. He's this intellectual, thoughtful, he's different from all the other players I've talked to. And, you know, very, I, I just felt uh, like this kinship or this similarity with him on that level. But then also he starts telling me about how he was picked on as a kid and he was bullied, which I was bullied and picked on as a kid. And I was a late bloomer. So there were all these weird parallels, like where I'm identifying with my, my own childhood hero that were, that were, you know, strange. So as, I mean, it was like, again, it was surreal that there were all these things sort of lining up about how I was actually similar to Don Carmen that made me even more sort of like thrilled that, you know, this is who my favorite player is. Um, and it's also such a, a vast, a big contrast between, so my first, I briefly mentioned this in the book, my first book idea was in 2005 when I quit my job at Islands Magazine to write the Iron Cheeks biography, The Professional Wrestler. Uh -huh. And I had spent years laying the groundwork to, to build a relationship with the Iron Cheek. And I actually literally moved to the town in, in Georgia where he lives and spent two or three months working with the Iron Cheek going to WrestleMania with him and meeting Hulk Hogan and all those guys. And so he was my childhood hero, but as great as Don Carmen was, the iron cheek was just off his rocker. I mean, 
that project, I mean, I was driving him to crack hotels. That project fell apart when he threatened to kill me in his living room. And I said, okay, <laughs> enough is enough. Wait, time out. I have to interrupt the flow here. Why did the Iron Sheik threaten to kill you in his living room? Well, he was so unstable and volatile from all the drug abuse that it, it, little things would set him off. So we're having a conversation and he was so, he's got a big ego, was very much into his own image. And he may, went on the, kind of like, like he, you can, he could no longer separate the Iron Sheik from Khosrow Vaziri, the, his real name. He'd be kind of morphed into the character. So he would go on these like rants, like, like he was doing a wrestling promo saying like how he was this and that. So he starts talking about how, you know, I'm the only person to come from the Middle East to become a successful wrestler in this country. And I said, well, actually, there was another guy, General Adnan, this, this guy from Iraq, which is true. And I was just fact checking him. And he got so angry that I would bring up another wrestler, and especially an Iraqi, because the Iranian Iraqi conflict, that he just went off on me. Like, you know, how dare you bring that up? And that's when he just got more and more angry and, and threatened to kill me. Wait, time out. I, mean, I need to digress a little bit here. <laughs> how did you actually get a, how did you actually wind up having an agreement to write the Iron Sheik's autobiography? Well, so you know how I said all those things about Royce Clayton and, and, and the, like, that whole strategy? Imagine that times 100 with the Iron Sheik. So I, I'm a freshman in college at, at uh, Duke University, my favorite, my favorite um, wrestler is the Iron Sheik. And I, again, I've always, I'm always thinking as a writer. So I'm like, someone needs to write. I mean, he has a fascinating story. He was the, here he is playing this evil Iranian, you know, bad guy in the age of Ayatollah Khomeini and the hostage crisis. The irony is that he was a bodyguard for the Shah of Iran in the 60s, who's the ideological yeah. opponent of the Ayatollah. And he defected from Iran when his, one of his good friends got murdered by the secret police in, in Tehran called Savak. He comes to the United States and he immediately coaches the United States Olympic wrestling team. Wow. Right. So, I mean, it's like all these just fascinating intersections with politics and history, fascinating story. So I was like, this is going to be, this is a great thing to write about. Um, and so at that point, kind of like that movie, The Wrestler, like all those guys from that era, he had, his star had fallen by the late 90s. He was wrestling in front of 100 people in high school gyms. And so I found out who his agent was and I built a relationship with his agent over time and then finally worked up to where I could go and volunteer to go to one of those wrestling shows to help out the agent. And that's where I met the Iron Sheik in probably the year 2000 at this little card show performance impressed him so much with my knowledge of his career that he invited me back to his room and spent the entire night hanging out with the Iron Sheik, staying in his hotel room while he smoked ungodly amounts of marijuana and put back a 12-pack of beer and just struck up like a friendship with him and got his number, he kept in touch, and that set the groundwork for years later when I would told him I wanted to, and, and told his family I want to do this book. <laughs> This is great. Wait, so <laughs> you're in his room. How old are you at the time? You're sitting in his hotel room. Uh, I mean, oh, uh, I was uh, 20. You're 20 years old. You're a student at Duke. You're sitting in the Iron Sheik's hotel room. The Iron Sheik, for people who don't know, legendary 80s wrestler, camel clutch, wrestled Hulk Hogan, big match, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he's like smoking, you know, insane amounts of marijuana, drinking beer. Is there not a part of you at that point that's like, I need to run? Or are you just a starstruck 20-year-old who thinks this is the greatest thing ever? 
naive starstruck 20 year old who's like, and, and then at four in the morning, he's like, we need to go out and get like food. So I drive him to a, a 24 hour diner at four in the morning and we go in and he's brought a bunch of eight by tens of himself and some Sharpies. So we sit down and there's all these drunk college kids that come in and he goes, he's like, whatever you want on the menu, order whatever you want. And of course they come in, the college kids come in, recognize him. And he's got the eight by tens and the Sharpie ready. He starts signing autographs for all of them and leaving phone messages, whatever they want, indulging all their requests. We have this whole meal. And at the end, he brings the check over to the college kids and says, okay, I signed all those autographs for you. I made all those phone calls. Now here's the bill. And, and, and dine, I, I dine and dash with the iron cheek. Yeah. Wow. We just walked out. Wait, it almost seems like in a way like the two, with the iron cheek, um, and the wax pack have in common your experiences is this sort of idea of faded fame and what fame does to you and how it impacts you and sort of the yeah. aftermath of fame. Um, and b- before we went on the Iron Sheik, the amazing Iron Sheik detour, I was actually going to ask you this. So it's a good, do you feel like most of the ball players you spoke to um, still view themselves as former major league players? Or do you feel like most of them are so separated from that life that it was almost like you saying, I once went to Duke or I want, you know, I once worked at the National Tennessee in 25 years ago. Um, and I don't know. Did, and, and do you think there's a different, you can tell by the temperament of who they are now by how they adjusted to what they were. Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I think most of these guys are not particularly, I mean, I was actually surprised and a lot of fans will be disappointed to know that they're not very nostalgic. Like I tried to get your guy, Gary Templeton, to sit down and watch the 1980, like game one of the 84 World Series. I'm in his living room. I had the DVD. I put it in and he's like, oh shit. Like he's like, I don't want to watch this shit. And I was like, come on. Like I just, I just, I wanted him to give me some like commentary on watching the game. He lasts like maybe half an inning and he's like, turn this shit off. Wow. And it's like, he wanted to watch Kung Fu movies. <laughs> That's what Gary Templeton loves to watch. Right. So, um, I think it's some of that is like, as Don Carmen said, it's sort of self-preservation, like to, to go back there too much is to remind yourself of how, you know, you could, you can never do that thing. You can never play at that level again. Right. It's sort of painful. Um, but I think, I think, you know, one of the things that comes across is most of these guys, especially the ones that were not the biggest stars are pretty good about like accepting what's right in front of them and kind of moving on like Steve Yeager and, you know, Don Carmen and these guys. I think the guys that have struggled the most are the biggest stars, like Good Doc Gooden and Carlton Fisk. You know, they may have had these, this, this fame and fortune, but they've never comfortably settled into their post-baseball identity. It's a crazy – I think about this all the time. I can tell you do too a lot. Like, if you think about it, it's a really crazy thing, this idea that you're eternally going to be famous for something you did very well – when you were 30. And I mean, I almost think people underrate it, the the impact of that, that you're always going to remember, no matter what Carlton Fisk did from that point on, he's always going to be the guy in the 1975 World Series who hit the home run. And there's no, and Vince Coleman's always going to be the guy who had three straight seasons of stealing 100 bases and had the tarp row on his leg. And it is very, very, very hard to move beyond that. Very hard. And kind of tragic in a way, don't you think? Yeah, no, it's very tragic, I think. I mean, and there is, I, I am sympathetic with, with that to some extent. I mean, I, I see how it's harder for them, certainly than Jaime Kokenau or to, to go into life after baseball, right? Yeah. Um, so here we are now. 
Your book is out. You have 29 ratings on, on Amazon, which is actually pretty strong considering it just came out. Okay. You, uh, you, are, you are the number one bestseller in Baltimore, Maryland travel books. Well, even better, people have sent me the screenshot. I'm number one in colorectal cancer, which I was trying to figure out. And somehow Rick Sutcliffe's colon cancer may have gotten, I don't know how they tag these things, but. You know what though? You can put on the cover of, uh, if you go paperback, number one Amazon bestseller. You know, yeah. I mean, you know that's right. That's right. Trick of the t- so now that it's all done, this Herculean effort of a book that I've never even touched as far as the effort you put into this and the highs and the lows and the greats and the Fisk and the Vince Coleman and the Gary Templeton and the Lee Mazzilli and a great cover comes out during a pandemic. You had this <laughs> tour. It didn't have, like all of it. Um, was it worth it? Oh yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. It's no question because you know, even if the highs were not the highs that they are, I would still say yes, because it was, it was almost, it almost felt involuntary. I don't know if you've had this experience with a book or a passion project, but uh, one of my friends, um, Rebecca Kyles told me when I was in that low moment, four years in, she's like, this book's inside of you. It has to come out like this, not a choice. You have, you have to do it. And she was right. And so I would have always regretted if I hadn't done it. So I think even if, no matter what it did or how it performs, like I'll, I'll be say it's worth it. Well, um, it's great. I'm being serious. This is one of my, I just love it. It was sitting by my bed for a long time. I was doing a lot of this on it. Like I would read the chapter, put it down, different <laughs> guy, curious what happened to this guy. The Gary Templeton chapter alone is worth the, uh, worth the price of admission. Um, I really truly admire the freaking badassness you put into this and the effort you put into this and the heart you put into this. And, uh, yeah, it's just great. So thank you for doing this. Seriously. Thanks. I no, I appreciate you. Have, like I said, you know, I remember we talked, again, I was talking about people early on that I'm grateful to. Um, in 2015, I think I emailed you or, or wrote you on Twitter about um, something. I was at the Hall of Fame trying to find Vince Coleman. And you, you know, you were so supportive early on, you know, and you, you're one of the biggest writers in this field. And for you to give me that time, I've always been grateful for that. So thank you. I want to thank today's guest, Brad Beluchin, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Brad on Twitter at WaxPackBook and buy his book wherever one does such things. One can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.